Well, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 2. That's what we're going to be looking at together this morning. Psalm number 2. And if you uh, came here this morning without a copy of the Bible and would like to own one, we'd love to give you one. That would make us so happy. And we provided some at the middle of each aisle, uh, up under the seats at the middle of each aisle. So if you need one, maybe flag somebody down who's sitting over there and get them to pass you one. And we'd love for you to take it with you. That could be your copy. And we'd especially love to talk to you about what you'll read there. Uh, maybe you've come here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you're just interested in what it means to follow Jesus. And a friend has invited you here so that you could get a little taste of it for yourself. And if that's, if that's you, I want to start this morning by by letting you know, there's sort of truth in advertising, that Christians gather around. That the, the heart of who they are and what they hope for is an, an incredibly audacious claim. Christians believe that everything in history, from the first time humans drew breath until this morning on which we woke up and drew breaths of our own, all of it hinges on Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. Everything before Jesus came was building to Jesus' coming. And that everything that's happened since is building to Jesus' coming again. What that means is that the time of Jesus' coming that Christians think about a lot at Christmas each year is a kind of hinge for all of history. Think of it as the hinge on a door, that point in the middle where two things diverge, come open and close. That, that that moment when Christ came was the hinge for everything that's happened before or since. And at Advent, it's a word you may have heard, may not know what Christians mean by that. It just means com- coming. At Advent, before the, uh, before the celebration of Christmas, it's a time that Christians all over the world for thousands of years have set aside to, to celebrate what it meant that Jesus came the first time and what it will mean when Jesus comes again. It's a, it's a time of year where we, we situate ourselves in between those comings, where we try to remember back, think back on what it meant for Israel that Jesus came the first time, why they were looking for him, what his coming meant for them, why it was so hopeful, so fulfilling of their hopes and dreams, of God's promises to them. And then, and then also we look ahead to the promise that Jesus is coming again at the end of history. And we think about all the reasons we need him to come, all the things that we depend on, that hinge on his coming again. So Advent is a kind of in-between time. Christians live all of their lives in between those comings. Advent is a time to think about it, to, to make sure we don't forget it. It's a time that we use to try to protect ourselves from settling for the kind of half-life we're tempted to pursue here or a time to, to protect ourselves from being beat down by the brokenness we're forced to live with now. It's a time for us to remember this is not the world as it was meant to be and this is not the world as it will be and Christ's coming promises us that everything God has said to his people Israel will come true. It's a time for us to be honest about what's wrong with the world now so we can be hungry for what Jesus will make that world to be. And, and the Psalms are especially useful to us in reflecting on these kind of themes at this time of year. So we've been in the Psalms together as a congregation since the summer, but we've saved one major category of Psalms for this time right now. 
There's a, there's a lot of different kinds of psalms. We've been trying to get used to all of them and understand how they work and what to do with each one when you come to it. We've looked at praise psalms and thanksgiving psalms and lament psalms and wisdom psalms and psalms of confidence and all these different labels we've attached to them. But there's one big theme, one kind of psalm that we haven't touched yet because we've saved it for this season in our church's life. Those psalms are known as royal psalms. One of the most important themes throughout the Psalms are songs about the king. And yes, some of those songs are about a specific king in Israel's history, David, written by him or about him. But there are many Psalms, including the one we're going to look at this morning, that that have language in them that make it clear they're not singing about any king Israel has seen yet. Not any king that's actually shown up in their life or their experience. They're, they're singing about a king who's still to come. A king whose coming is going to mean the end of all the things that have threatened them. A king whose coming will mean the fulfillment of all the things that they'd been promised. Their lives, all of their hopes and their dreams hang on the coming of a king that the Psalms sing about over and over again. And that theme starts out in Psalm number two, where we're going to be together this morning. The theme of the king gets introduced here. One of the things that's come out in my study of this psalm that I hadn't realized before is that this psalm, Psalm number two, a lot of Old Testament scholars, these experts, think it goes as a package deal with Psalm number one. There's actually a lot of different, uh, there are several different clues that they were meant to be uh, joined together, not necessarily as the same psalm, but as a, as a, as a, as a set of two that are kind of an introduction of everything else, of everywhere else, the collection is going to go, what this collection of songs is meant to do for you and in the life of Israel and now in the life of the church. Psalm number two is put right here at the beginning of the collection so that you would know when you come to this songbook, you're meant to look for the king to come. You're meant to sing to the king to come. You're meant to pray for the king to come. And, it, and these songs are meant to show you and remind you and build into your sense of yourself and your place in the world why you need this king so badly. I want to walk through Psalm number two to help you see some of this. It comes out in lots of other psalms, but Psalm number two is a clear and helpful introduction to that theme. I want to help you see just a couple of things about this psalm. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll pull other royal psalms and try to go a little deeper with what Psalm 2 introduces to us. So what I want you to see is that here in Psalm number 2, you've got a question that lies underneath the surface of it, a question the psalm was meant to raise for you, something you need to understand, a question that you need to feel in your gut. Then there's an answer that's meant to be good news once you've learned to appreciate the question it answers. And then at the end of the psalm, there's an offer, an offer for you and for anyone else who would ever hear and read this psalm to know what it is to have this king as your own king, not as a king who stands against you in judgment, but who stands for you in grace. We're going to look at the question, at the answer, and at the offer in Psalm number two this morning. And I want to begin by just reading it for you. So if you would, please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read Psalm number two. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. You can be seated. This psalm begins with a question, but it's a question that begs another question. A question that actually isn't in the psalm on its surface, but lies underneath it. The question that, that's on the surface of the psalm, that, that, that comes out of the very first line, is a question about the nations. Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? That's the question on the surface. It, it, the, the writer of this psalm is imagining all the powers that be gathered around Israel, plotting. These would have been powers who would have hated each other. They would have been competitors. But this is an enemy of my enemy is a friend situation. They realize in each other an opportunity if they band together to stand against and maybe even overthrow their shared common enemy. And who is that? That's where this question comes from. Why do they rage against the Lord? Against his anointed? Why would they, why would they want to overthrow the Lord who's good and loving? Why would they do that? The words of these kings, these powers that be, come out in verse 3, and their words give the answer to the question of verse 1, why they rage. And behind their words, we get the question that's under the surface of the whole psalm, the, the, the burden, the concern that this psalm is, sit, is set here to, to help us understand and, and to, to look through to Jesus and his coming. Here's what they say. Here's why they rage and plot. Verse 3, they, they say together, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do they rage against the Lord and his king? They rage because they want their power without accountability. They want the chance to throw their weight around without anyone there to stop them. They want to do what they want to do they want to do what serves their interests and they don't care who else gets hurt by it. In their minds, might makes right. And so far, it seems like it's working out for them. It's hard to say exactly what situation's behind this psalm. It doesn't 
cite anything from history that helps us know. It doesn't give us an author at the top of it. We don't know exactly who first wrote this or what they were thinking of or if there were specific nations with specific names that they had in mind when they wrote this song. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know about it. But what we do know, what's I think really helpful to know for you today, is that by the time the Psalms were collected together, by the time someone, some, some people had had a chance to collect all of their favorite psalms, their songs, their poems that Israel had used to help guide its worship, by the time somebody collected those into the book that we have today, they put these psalms at the beginning on purpose. And what would have been true of their time when they were putting these psalms right here at the beginning on purpose to introduce the whole collection, what would have been true of them at that time was that they were under the thumb of one empire after another. This would have happened after Israel was in exile, after they'd been conquered in their own land and shipped off to the lands of other powers and sometimes allowed to trickle back to their homeland, but, but never really to be home. Even when they were living in Israel, they were living at the mercy and the whims of other powers who didn't even care about them. They were disposable resources, Israel was, those, their people. They were there to be used however the powerful wanted to use them. You can find evidence of this all through the Old Testament. Think of the story of Esther, this young girl who gets recruited at the whim of the powerful king to participate in his harem. She had no options. This was just that she was a resource he could exploit like that. Or Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego. These are the best and the brightest Israel had. Recruited first into the, into the service of the empire to use their strengths to serve their enemies, basically, and then disposed of at, w- at will by these powers, thrown in the lion's dens or into burning furnaces. These were people who had no rights, no land, no ear to speak their concerns into, and no hope on the horizon. And when you live like that, at the mercy of powerful empires, you can't resist. When there's a huge disconnect between what you've been told about God and his people and how he feels about you and what you see when you open your eyes and look around, it makes sense to wonder, who rules the world anyway? Who is actually in charge? And that's the question underneath the surface of this psalm. Looking around at the nations raging and plotting and banding together against the Lord and his anointed, Israel looks around and says, what king, what anointed, who's in charge here? Who's paying attention to us? Can anybody stand up to these guys? Can anyone make them give an account for what they've done with their power? It's a question that made sense in Israel's situation. It makes sense today, too. There are examples all around us. I mean, just look at the, at the news lately. Just this year, even just in, in the last few weeks, and you see plenty of examples you paid attention to what's going on with the Rohingya people? Recently described as the most persecuted people on earth. They've been driven completely out of their homeland in Myanmar. Most of them now living in horrible conditions in refugee camps in Bangladesh. A people with no way to resist the fact that the powers in their homeland don't like them. Or have you paid attention maybe to some of the news headlines coming out of Kurdistan? We have the Kurdish people, many of whom now live in Nashville, spread out through Iran and Iraq and Syria, hated 
by many people in Iran and Iraq and Syria, especially by the people in power. Gathering together best they can in an area where there's more of them than anyone else. They recently voted in this area that we call Kurdistan for independence, to actually separate out into their own land where they could make a land and have their own power in a place where, where they wouldn't be hated and hunted by the other people who lived around them. This was just a referendum vote. It was just them saying what they wanted. It, was, it didn't have any kind of power behind it. They didn't declare war. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't shoot missiles at Iran or, or Syria or Iraq. They just said, let's try to be independent. And now every one of those nations, hating them, don't even want them to be free. Don't even want them to, to have their own land. And they're threatening war on Kurdistan. Not explicitly yet, but the, 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 the force is building. The momentum towards that kind of solution is building. They live at the mercy of powers who don't like them. And you don't have to go outside of our country even. You don't even have to go to the regions, or to the, to the realm, if you will, of, of powers of state plenty of evidence just in the last months even in our own country of powerful people using their power to get what they want no matter who it hurts we won't soon forget what we saw in Charlottesville the raging of powers that feel slighted reasserting themselves calling out their forces. And lately, every day it seems like, new reports of sexual harassment and abuse from Republicans and Democrats, from business people, political figures, entertainment people, the media figures. And it's not like these things are new. They've been in the news lately, thanks be to God, because some light has been shed on problems that have been there for a long, long time. And if you're on the receiving end of the raging of these powerful people, you have reason to ask, who rules the world anyway? Can the powerful do whatever they want without any accountability? Is there anybody who will set the record straight and tell the truth about what is good and right, true and beautiful? That's the question this psalm is meant to answer. Who rules the world? Who's really in charge here? And at the heart of the psalm, its driving purpose and the reason it's placed at the top of a collection of psalms meant to encourage people who lived under the thumb of one empire after another, the answer at the heart of it is, who rules the world? God's anointed. That's who rules the world. It's another word for, another way of saying God's Messiah. It means anointed one. Verse four begins to respond to the words of the powerful. They say, let us cast off their cords from us. We want our power, no accountability. That's what we want. Let's see if we can make that happen. And they try. But he who sits in the heavens, he laughs at them, at their pretensions. The Lord holds them in derision, verse four says. 
They're pitiful in his eyes. Now, I think we need to be careful not to misread this. I don't think we're meant to see God as taking lightly the abuse of powerful people uh, against the weak. I don't think we're meant to, 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 to see him sort of shrugging off the ugliness of what these powers have done with their power. And the reason I don't think we're meant to see that here is that there's plenty of other places, even in the Psalms, where God is near to the brokenhearted, where he is tender towards those who are weak, where he is passionately committed to righting the wrongs done against them. He doesn't take this lightly for reasons we're going to talk a lot more about here in a minute. The reason I think we're given this image of laughter is that it's really just to make one point and one point only, and and it's crucial to what this Psalm is here to say to us. God is not threatened by their roiling passion and rage. He is not threatened by them. He laughs at even the thought that they could actually burst his bonds, do what they want and get away with it. It's a ridiculous assumption in his mind. Pitiable, laughable, that they could use their power without any sort of accountability. And this psalm is about his intent, his promise to expose their foolishness once and for all. The rest of the psalm looks ahead to how he's going to expose them for the fools that they are. And it has everything to do with the king that he will set up himself in his holy city. Then, verse 5 says, he will speak to them in his wrath. They have spoken to him. They have thrown down a gauntlet, so to speak. They've said, we're out of here. No more bonds for us. We'll do what we want, when we want. Try to stop us. And God answers them in kind. He will speak to them. And when they hear his words, he will terrify them in his fury. What words bring terror to the hearts of the powerful? What is it that causes these powerful men to shake in their boots? Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. What terrifies the powerful is that God is setting up his king, his anointed, and there's nothing they can do about it. Listen to the words of this king. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree, says the king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Not literally gave birth to you, but established you in this throne. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. Think of a shepherd's rod, but one made of iron to bring into line anyone who steps out. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, probably a reference to a tradition in Egypt where they would, they would form clay pots with names of their enemies written on them and dash them ceremonially, symbolically, as a, as a symbol of what they would do if that nation stood up against them. What are these words? What's the point? This is a psalm about God's plan to set the powerful in their place through his king, his anointed one. And, and this is not a psalm about David. We don't know much about 
when the psalm was written and what circumstances were going on at the time. But by the time it was put here, at the top of the whole collection of psalms, it was far more than a celebration of any one particular king. In fact, by the time it would have been put here, Israel even having kings would have been a distant memory. They didn't have their own king. They were under the, they were under the thumb of these, of these emperors from other lands, worshiping other gods. So when Israel put this psalm here at the beginning of their collection, when they came and sang this psalm to one another, they weren't celebrating any particular king from their history. They were looking ahead to God's final answer to who rules the world. They were looking for the Christ. They were looking for the one that we know as Jesus. And friends, that's what makes this psalm a psalm to sing and read and think on at Christmas. This is a psalm about the hope of Christ's coming. It's a psalm that helps us understand why we needed Jesus in the first place, why Israel was looking forward to him, and why we, on this backside of his coming, look to his return. What we need from this king is someone who can say no to the powerful, whether they like it or not. Someone who gets to set the record straight. Christmas is about justice for the oppressed. That means that Christmas is also about judgment. It's about the overthrow, the absolute destruction, the defeat once and for all of everyone and everything that stands in the way of God's peace. Sometimes we read a psalm like this one, friends, I think, and, and, we, and we shrink back a little bit at the at language like, like breaking them with a rod of iron or shattering them like a vessel or or the, the, the wrath quickly kindled of this sun that we're told to kiss. But to, to shrink back at images like that requires a kind of comfort level in life that many people don't get to enjoy. So often I think we associate Christmas with a kind of warm sentimental peace, right? That's more about an internal sense of calm, general happiness, Something as, a feeling as warm and fuzzy as those fleece footy jammies you might unwrap under the tree. When, when warmth and sentimentality are what we mean by peace, when we sing of it and think of it at Christmas. Well then, of course, the images like this of judgment, get those out of my Christmas celebration. I don't want wrath when I'm singing O Little Town of Bethlehem. But, but there's a horrible side effect when we think about Christmas in light of warmth and sentimentality and not judgment, justice of God's king. Earlier this week, uh, we, I was uh, spending a little time with friends who work for Project Connect, one of our ministry partners here, led by men, uh, several members of our church. And we were talking about this psalm together and we're talking about the work that they're doing among people who live in poverty. And one of the things that they've helped me recognize over the last few years is just how difficult Christmas can be for people who are living in poverty, largely because there's this huge gap between what it looks like most people are experiencing in their lives and what they get to experience in their lives. Where Christmas is mostly associated with more and more and more stuff that they can't buy or with giving your kids the perfect experience when, when they aren't going to be able to do that or with, with wonderful family meals that, where everything goes perfectly and everyone enjoys being around one another when their families are broken and they're trying their best to raise their children on their own, perhaps as a single mother. When, when they are living under the thumb of powers they can't control or resist, Christmas seems like somebody else's holiday. And it's alienating and painful. 
When we, thong, when we think about Christmas and the peace of, of Christmas as this sort of warm and fuzzy sentimentality, people like those that our friends at Project Connect are serving don't get to participate. But Psalm 2 is putting Christmas on a different footing. And this is a footing that is absolutely for them and for everyone. This is a promise of peace in a world where nations rage, where power serves its own interests no matter what's best for the weak. It isn't justice that sounds distasteful if you think about it from their perspective. Justice sounds like good news. The peace of Christmas is a victory over everyone and everything that stands against God and his good, just, and loving rule. There is no peace without victory. And we may not often associate Christmas with God's judgment of the unjust, but we should. Because the Bible does. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the absolute and total destruction of everything that stands against his rule. And what we celebrate at Christmas, even though we're still praying for him to come in his fullness, even though we're looking around and we recognize that, un, that, the, that the unjust do still often have power, that the question of who rules the world, at least in some sense, at least in our experience, is still an open one. Even though here in this time, right now, we, we do long for something more than what we're seeing, when we recognize that God has actually sent his son, we have proof that even Israel at the writing of this psalm couldn't have imagined that God does care about injustice, that he cares enough to send his own son to secure it, to secure the justice and peace that he promised long ago. It is important to him. It is guaranteed by him. And it's only a matter of time. The psalm is built as an answer to a question that all of us should learn to feel. But it doesn't end with any sort of ultimatum. The psalm ends with an offer. I think this is so interesting even unexpected based on what you've seen so far up through verse 9 of the psalm. We've seen the question that the psalm is meant to answer. We've seen, we've seen how it answers it. Who rules the world? Well, God says, my anointed, that's who. He's coming. And he will rule with a rod of iron. But the psalm ends on a note of grace. One writer put it, it, it ends not with an ultimatum, but with an invitation. It's a promise that God's anointed one, his Christ, is going to put an end to oppression on earth. Yes. It's a promise that he will break down all who stand against his loving and peaceful and just rule. Yes, it is that. That's good news for Israel. That's good news for us. But the same God who laughs at the pitiful attempt of the powerful to stand against him also offers these powerful people, these raging, evil, wicked powers that be, offers them a chance to repent. 
he invites these wicked powers to trust him, to submit to his rule, to kiss the son, and to find refuge in him. Verse 10, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, before it's too late, submit to him now and know his peace for yourself. Serve the Lord with fear. If you do that, you can rejoice. Kiss the son. You don't want him angry at you. You don't want his wrath kindled against you. Kiss him now. It's a symbol of homage to him, of worship of him. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. The same God who promises judgment promises refuge. Do you see that? That's who he is. That's what his rule is like. He is gracious and patient in his anger. And that's why he's worth trusting with everything. It's also one of the reasons that Psalm 2 gets cited so often in the New Testament. He gets cited a bunch of times in the New Testament, a couple of times in the earliest preaching of the church. And in, this, in that setting where the earliest apostles, those who lived with Jesus, were his friends and watched him unfold his ministry and the purpose of his coming. When they preached about Jesus, they looked to Psalm 2 to do it. And when they cited Psalm 2, it was clearly about Jesus. But even more than that, it was about Jesus' death on the cross. And it was about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I'm not going to take the time to read these passages for you. I want to tell you where they are so you can look at them for yourself. The first time that comes up is in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been preaching about Jesus and healing people, and it got the attention of the powers that be who wanted to put an end to it. They they capture them. They throw them into prison. They they pull them out of prison because they they don't want to roil up the crowds who like them. So they just give them a stern warning. Stop talking about Jesus. And when Peter and John get back to their friends, they pray to God in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. They pray to God. And when they pray to him for for his name to go out through them in the city and then even further, they remind him that there was a time when the nations raged against his son. For them, the nations meant Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and even Israel and her powers that be. They all raged and they killed your son. But their prayer treats that death of Jesus as a kind of judo move where God used the power of those who stood against him against them. They think they're putting an end, squashing something before it begins. They're actually playing right into the purposes he had predestined for Jesus' life and death. That's what, the, that's what they pray for. And then in Acts chapter 13, Paul is talking about Jesus, talking about why he matters. He quotes from Psalm 2 again. Now it's about Jesus' resurrection. Today I have begotten you. You are my son, he quotes. And he says, this happened when God raised Jesus from the dead. So God setting up his king in his city, on his holy hill in Zion, happens when his king gets crushed by the powers that be, but does not stay in the grave. The way God sets up his king is to accomplish something that could be offered to even the powers who put him to death in the first place. A gracious sacrifice of himself for the sins of even evil, wicked people. And a proof through the resurrection that those sins have been paid for once and for all. So that now anybody who will can hear Psalm 2's offer and take it for themselves. 
kiss the sign before it's too late. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The same king who brings truth about what's going on, what's right, what's just, about who's in charge, he also brings grace even to the evil, to the wicked, even to people like me and you. That's a refuge you can experience for yourself this morning if you'll trust in him. One of the church's favorite hymns is a hymn called Amazing Grace. It was written by a man who knew from his own experience the power of what Psalm 2 offers. Written by a man named John Newton when he wrote the hymn, he was the pastor of a church in an English village called Olney. But before that, before he became a pastor, John Newton had a career, a thriving career, a successful career as the captain of a slave trading vessel. His job was to go to Africa to pick up human cargo and to take it to the places that wanted it. That was his job. It's hard to imagine a better example of someone who belongs among the rulers of verses 1 and 2. Let us burst their bonds apart. Who cares who it hurts? This is, this is, this is, this is padding my estate. This is putting money in my pocket. He used his power without accountability to exploit other people for his gain. That's what John Newton did. He did that work for almost 15 years. And then God's grace found him where he was, deserving nothing but the judgment this psalm promises. You know where he's coming from now. If you, if you think about that background and you, and you think of the lines that make up the first verse of his hymn, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Imperialist, a slave trader. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. I want to leave you with two takeaways from the offer of this psalm as we face injustice in the world and as we look to to celebrate the meaning of Jesus' coming. One's for how we view the powers that be. One's for how we view ourselves. Are you passionate about justice? I hope so. God is. That's why he sent Jesus. But if you're passionate about justice and, and in, some, in some cases, however passionate you are, you are more and more vulnerable to self-righteousness. And this psalm is a reminder that God offers the same grace any one of us has experienced to the powers that be that we wish weren't powerful, whose overthrow we pray for. You never know who might eventually see the, the evil abuse of power, repent of it, kiss the sun, and find refuge like John Newton did. You never know. So even as you work to undermine the powerful in their use of power against the weak, even as you do what you can, wherever God has placed you to stand against and work against the effects of their powerful abuse, we should be praying for them wanting to see their repentance, 
wanting them to embrace God's authority and his accountability now. That's a takeaway for how we think about the powers that be while we work against what they do, but pray that they would know God's grace as we have. Here, here's one takeaway for you. You never know where you might need to repent of your own abuse of power. I say that because a lot of times we have power we don't recognize that we have. Sometimes we're just blind to it, especially those of us who live in a majority culture. You have privileges that you, that you never thought of as privileges that you think of as normal. Sometimes those privileges rest on, on realities that hurt others and you, you don't see it. I think this psalm is an invitation to those of us who belong to majority cultures to honestly consider the ways we might be contributing to systems that hurt other people. And the reason that this psalm is helpful to push us in that direction is not just that it talks about how dangerous it is to stand against the justice of God, to use your power to abuse the weak, not just the warning of this psalm, though that's an important warning we should let land on us. The other reason we should be honest and careful and self-critical, have good questions with one another, ask good, ask good questions, is that this psalm is also an offer of grace that gives us no reason to be defensive if we recognize areas where we have abused power without noticing it. Did you know that John Newton didn't start opposing the slave trade until years after his conversion? If you know about John Newton, you may know that he, he, his conversion leads him to become a passionate advocate of the end of, sla of the slave trade. So William Wilberforce, one of the leading voices in getting the slave trade abolished in England, uh, was a kind of disciple of, influenced by John Newton and his ministry. And Newton himself wrote a tract on the slave trade, attacking it, exposing some of its abuses. He became a passionate voice for justice in that area. But but for years after his conversion, even into his life as a pastor, he didn't see anything wrong with it. It takes time to see what you don't see. And maybe that's where we are. And if we are, friends, we have no reason to protect ourselves from new knowledge. God is kind. He's gracious to anyone who takes refuge in him. And if we notice something about ourselves, some area in which we've been abusing power, we maybe even didn't know we had, well, that's just another area to depend on Jesus. Another opportunity to see his grace show up even for sinners like us. Another reason to thank him for being for us everything we can't be for ourselves. At worst, it gives us more of an opportunity to take refuge in him, to bring what we love in line with what he loves to kiss the sun all over again. That brings nothing but refuge. Don't protect yourself through defensiveness from what God is doing in your life through the offer of this psalm and the peace that it gives to anyone who's willing to take refuge in Jesus. Who rules the world? That's the question we started with. It's the question underneath all of this psalm and the answer is clear. Jesus does. He rules the world with truth for the oppressor and the oppressed, 
a truth that sets the record straight, but also with grace for oppressor and oppressed, anyone who will repent. We're going to sing Joy to the World in a minute. I love that song, and I love the way that it captures the message of this psalm, the balanced beauty of this anointed one. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness that is coming, will be established, and the wonders of his love. Father, we want to trust in Jesus and find refuge in him. And we want to do that more and more fully, more and more clearly. The longer we live, the longer we know his grace, and the, 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 the more we're able to become aware of our own sin and need for him. So I pray that by the message of this psalm, you would convict us where we need to be convicted. You would inspire us to change where we need to change. You would give us hope and rest and peace through what Jesus came to offer. Come quickly, Jesus, we pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.